Hello and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary and I'm a clinical assistant professor and infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. I am joined today by Dr. Julianne Justo, who is a clinical associate professor at the University of South Carolina College of Pharmacy with a practice site in ID Consul and antimicrobial stewardship at Prisma Health Midlands in Columbia, South Carolina. Hey, Erin, it's a pleasure to be back. Hey, Julie, thanks for joining us. And we are also thrilled to welcome for the first time to the Breakpoints podcast, Dr. Helen Newland, who is the System Antimicrobial Stewardship Coordinator at BJC Healthcare in St. Louis, Missouri. Hi, guys. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us, Helen. And so the goal of our podcast today is to talk all about remdesivir and particularly the emergency use authorization medication and how the three of us has helped, have helped navigate our health systems to fairly and ethically allocate this medication. So like many of you listening to this podcast, the last two months of our lives have been heavily, heavily focused on this drug and trying to come up with the most fair and the best possible system we can think of in order to ethically allocate this scarce resource. Now, remdesivir, of course, is an antiviral medication that has been proven effective for the treatment of COVID-19. Prior to May 1st, access to this medication was through the Compassionate Use Program, and that was subsequently expanded into expanded access programs. And then also patients could re receive the medication in the context of enrolling in a clinical trial. But on May 1st, the FDA granted emergency use authorization of the drug. And this was based on results of the NIH-sponsored adaptive COVID-19 treatment trial, where in this trial, remdesivir demonstrated the ability to decrease time to clinical improvement by four days in patients with COVID-19 compared to placebo. Now, this announcement followed the publication of another randomized controlled trial. That trial was done exclusively in China um, and that was published on April 29th. And then also on April 29th, there were two press releases of global trials, one being the adaptive trial and then another being a trial of patients with severe disease that looked at five versus 10 days of therapy. Now, so on April 29th, um, clinicians were brought these three sets of data. In the Chinese trial, they actually found no benefit to remdesivir, whereas the two press releases did seem to describe a benefit. But at that time, we had very limited details of the study data. And so we just want all of our listeners to know that we're walking through this process, you know, up to about two months later. And so now we hopefully have solved some of these questions and answers. But remember that at that time, we were all scrambling and spinning our wheels that last week of April and that first week of May, trying to make optimal decisions for our patients to allocate scarce resources. This is something we never hoped we would have to do. And all of us had little, if, if any, experience with this outside of just standard drug shortage mitigation. And I think we all agree that press releases are not exactly how we prefer to make the best clinical decisions. And so it has been a whirlwind to say the least. Um, and throughout the episode, we are just hoping to share our experiences coming from the entire state of South Carolina, two UPMC systems, one of which is 25 hospitals and one is a seven hospital system, and then of course the BJC system. So with that, Julie, I think, do you mind kicking us off and giving us some more perspective of where we came from and then where we are now with remdesivir emergency use authorization allocation? 
Sure. Um, I'll, I'll give it my best shot. As you mentioned, there was a lot of sleuthing that was going on um, uh, throughout April, May, and June to try to sort through the process of where we are. Um, so I'll try to give a little bit of a recap. Um, as you mentioned previously, remdesivir received an emergency use authorization or EUA from the FDA on May 1st of this year. Um, and uh, many folks were left wondering how to get access to this medication, but on May 9th, the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, or ASPR, which is part of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS, announced that the national allocation process of remdesivir would be based on need. Um, and so just to further round that out, Gilead Sciences donated a total of 940,000 vials of remdesivir at 100 milligrams each. The first donation was a little over 600,000 vials on May 3rd, and the second donation from the company was a little over 330,000 vials in early June of this year. Asper uh, took this donated supply and in turn requested COVID-19 patient data from hospitals nationwide at periodic intervals, about one to two weeks or so, to be submitted to the teletracking platform directly to Asper. Um, they also used this data in combination with the CDC's uh, National Health Safety Network and input from state health departments regarding their data for COVID-19. They used all of this information in order to determine the state-by-state -state percentage of suspected and confirmed COVID-19 patients in U.S. hospitals over these intervening weeks. This percentage at any given point in time was then applied to the amount of remdesivir that was being distributed to states, jurisdictions, and territories that particular week. Drug is distributed by the case with 40 vials allocated per case of drug. And uh, in total, the federal government is planning on uh, allocating all of this supply, except for a little less than 2% of the donates, donated supply will be held in national reserve in order to respond to hotspots if needed. If you're interested, you can see the exact number of cases of drug that your state or jurisdiction has received each week since this process started by going to the website phe.gov and searching for remdesivir. You'll see a very detailed web page that summarizes the majority of the information that I just mentioned. And then they have a very clear table that'll provide week by week uh, the amount of cases of drug that uh, your state or jurisdiction has been given, which is quite nice. Right now, the last two allocations of this donated remdesivir supply are slated for the weeks of June 15th and June 29th based on patient data submitted by hospitals on June 8th. Drug has been sent directly to state health departments, which then determine the best way to allocate remdesivir throughout the state. Um, so that's really where we are nationally. Moving to kind of the state level, varying approaches have been taken to date. Some uh, states ship drug to health systems based on COVID-19 incidence data, which is very similar to the national process. And other states have chosen to ship drugs earmarked for individual patients uh, based on a variety of systems. Sometimes it's eligibility criteria, sometimes it's a lottery system, sometimes it's a mix of both. This allocation process can then repeat a third time by the point that you get to the local health system or hospital, if relevant for that particular state. 
So we yeah. hope this donated supply of remdesivir will last each respective state until the uh, drug achieves FDA approval and is available for purchase on the U.S. market. Um, unfortunately, I'm unaware if any other public information from Gilead Sciences uh, regarding their timeline has been made available as it relates to the FDA approval process. So fingers crossed that that's going to happen soon. Thanks, Julie. I think that's really helpful perspective, breaking that down from the national now all the way down to the local level. So when we started with this, I think there's a lot more transparency now, which is very helpful. The last piece to emphasize that this drug is not yet FDA approved and after this initial donation is, is complete, being distributed by the end of June, we do not know if and when more drug will be available. Um, but at the beginning, it was it was very confusing because we weren't sure when state health departments were getting drug, how much drug they were receiving, um, and then if and when that was coming to your hospital, and then if it came to your hospital and you were a part of a health system, could you redistribute that to patients within your health system? And that was that was tricky to navigate at, at first, and it, and it was it was kind of hard to walk through. And I think all three of us did that in, in similar but different ways, and we're going to share our stories with our audience today. So, Helen, do you want to start by telling us how the BJC approached drug allocation initially um, and then kind of how that's developed over the past two months? Yeah, sure. Just to give you some background of BJC, we are a 13-hospital health system based in St. Louis. And that includes our academic medical center, Barnes Jewish, and St. Louis Children's Hospital. And then we have 11 community hospitals that range in size from about 500 beds down to critical access. And three of those are just across the Mississippi River in Illinois. So talk about sleuthing and scrambling, as you guys both mentioned. As soon as we heard that remdesivir was going to be available, we called a meeting to try to figure out what we're going to do with it, what criteria for use would we set around it. Uh, the problem is that uh, we were missing two key pieces of information that we needed to make these decisions. And one was which patients were most likely to benefit, which we did not really know yet since we only had press releases. And number two, uh, we didn't know how much remdesivir we would be getting. So it was a very short call and we sort of shrugged our shoulders and said that we would reconvene once we knew more. <laughs> so then it was just a few days later that we were notified that two of our hospitals in Missouri were going to be getting some remdesivir. We didn't know how much. We actually didn't know how much until it actually arrived in our facilities. And uh, one hospital received nine five-day courses and our other hospital received five five-day courses. So that was all that we got in the first distribution and we had a system-wide census, COVID census of about 170 people. So we formed, uh, pulled back together an emergency meeting with our system leaders, our ID experts, critical care experts, and also bioethicist um, Jay Malone who's wonderful, who's so valuable to the conversation. I know we're going to talk about ethical principles later, but um, that was really something I learned a lot about, and I'd never really been part of discussions um, involving these things previously in my career. So, um, But as they say, necessity is the mother of invention. We developed the best criteria we could with the available evidence that we had, which was very little. 
We basically follow the EUA criteria with the addition of adding for inclusion criteria that they have to have a lab confirmed SARS-CoV-2 test and also that the primary team agrees to give it um, just to add a little bit of um, medical decision making in this and we did have early on you know some patients who were actually improving it just didn't seem to make sense to to give to them when they're um, you know seem to be improving and on their way to discharge. Um, for exclusion criteria we did add in um, if they qualify for a compassionate use program through um, the Gilead, for the Gilead Compassionate Use Program. We did include or discuss uh, time to symptom onset, but um, this is where one of the things that I learned um, from the bioethical principles is that this actually excludes disadvantaged communities that often seek out care later due to lack of access. So we started with a lottery process with these precious 14 five-day courses in two of our hospitals. And then even just a couple days later, we got a few more courses at two other hospitals, one on the Illinois side and one more on the Missouri side, very small amount. Um, but basically, they just generate an alphabetical list of all the COVID patients and number them sequentially. And then using a random number generator to select the patients and then um, they'll review the patient for eligibility. And if they're not eligible, then um, you select another patient. And you continue that um, random number generating until all the five-day courses are allocated. Uh, we now have a system lottery process in place that we have not actually had to activate yet. Um, but it was felt as, you know, especially as we got more supply and had more time to develop a system process, uh, that you know the remdesivir should be a system resource and it shouldn't matter which BJC hospital you get admitted to whether your what your chances were of getting remdesivir. Um, I really do love what Julie and her team has done in, in South Carolina um, as it with it being a state uh, resource. I, I think that's great work there. Um, but basically the um, the system process looks very similar, but it's just done at the system level and we would need to move drug around when we get to that point. But we haven't had to implement it yet just because we've actually had a pretty decent supply coming in and have had enough to treat all of our eligible patients, but who knows what's gonna happen after our June supply runs out. Um, we do have a shared dashboard of um, that we track available five-day courses at each hospital and the number of current COVID patients and the number of COVID patients admitted in the last 24 hours. So we keep a close eye on that. Uh, so that is basically how we've evolved up to this point. Everything I've sent out in, in SBAR has, has been labeled interim, so we continue to evolve um, as we go. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that, Helen. My experience is very similar to yours. So UPMC, as I briefly alluded to, is um, a large, large health system. We have hospitals in Pennsylvania, Western Maryland, and New York. So I guess first decision was the same. We kept um, drug within the states because the different state health departments were allocating differently and shipping across state lines. Um, ultimately, we, had deci we decided was not something that we were going to do, um, but we have been in communication with our Western Maryland and New York colleagues to help them treat the patients that they're getting based on the supply they receive from their state. But within Pennsylvania, 
we then had the same thing happen. So on May 13th, we had 18 vials delivered to one hospital um, and then a handful of vials delivered to another hospital in central Pennsylvania. So that's three courses in Western Pennsylvania for 25 hospitals. And at the time our COVID census, I think was 70 patients. I will say overall, um, UPMC in Western Pennsylvania has been very fortunate to not be significantly hit like other areas such as New York and, and whatnot with, with the COVID-19 pandemic. But um, so we got three patient courses and same thing, we hadn't really had a, we didn't have a plan uh, the day that those courses arrived. Um, and so all of this came together in about 48 hours of a team working really hard and dedicating basically essentially 48 straight hours into trying to figure out what to do. But we had the same thought in that anyone at any one of our hospitals should have, a, should be able to be treated with this medication that is, it is a system resource. So we are working right now on two kind of supplies. So central Pennsylvania, we have a seven hospital system there that's on Epic as their electronic health record. And then in Western and um, Northern Pennsylvania, we have a 25 other hospitals that are on Cerner. We also have two hospitals within the 25 that are not on Cerner. They're on different EHRs. And so those hospitals are actually self-submitting, but otherwise we're screening all patients based on the electronic health record and have kind of these two hubs of supply. Um, and we, also consulted with a bioethicist, which was very enlightening for me because I've never been a part of those conversations before and I learned a tremendous amount. And essentially, we also developed a lottery system grounded in two public health ethical obligation principles. So the first is we have a duty as healthcare providers to steward a scarce resource to promote public health. And then we also have a duty to mitigate health disparities by lessening the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on disadvantaged communities. So sounds very similar to what you guys discussed and how are we going to ensure patients receive this medication, taking those two things into account. And so this lottery process is actually, our model public policy is actually publicly available on pit.edu's website. If anyone wants to check it out, also happy to share really any of the information discussed on the podcast today, Julie, Helen, and I are more than happy to share. Um, but we developed our process engaging with ethicists, like we said, community members, um, legal scholars from different schools of law across the country, um, public health and disaster medicine experts, and then, of course, our Office of Diversity and Inclusion, and then our leadership core that came up with the lottery or our system therapeutics committee is comprised of UPMC representatives from critical care, emergency medicine, intensive care services, and units um, supply chain. So pharmacy supply chain is obviously essential to figuring out where the heck these cases of drug were and storing them appropriately and shipping them to all of our hospitals, pharmacists, um, infectious diseases, infection prevention. So that's kind of our core team and different people that were represented as well as patient representatives. We went, the, the big decision to make at first, of course, is like who was going to be eligible for this drug. So very similar. Um, we stuck with at first just the clinical trial criteria. Our ethicists told us that that's truly the only ethical thing you can do because making any other kind of cutoffs would be a little arbitrary in the absence of data. And remember at the beginning we had extremely limited data. So we went with, if you would have met a ACT trial criteria, then you were in. And if you had an exclusion criteria to the ACT trial, then you were not eligible for EUA drug. Um, and then kind of like similar to what you said, so the an, an exclusion criteria for the ACT trial was discharge within 72 hours. Those are those patients that are maybe saturating less than 94% on room air, but they seem to be getting better and they 
have a plan to go home in the next day or two, we do exclude those patients as well in line with the trial. I will say that's really tricky because COVID is a humbling disease and patients can get precipitously worse. And so we always tell clinicians to err on including the patient. We would rather include them, give them a dose of drug if they have a respiratory status that clinically qualifies. And if they discharge on day three, great. We just take those vials back of the uncompleted course and we reallocate them. And I think we're going to talk about allocation disparities and things like that at the in it later in this podcast. Um, but we do not, we agree, we have to be hospitalized and we do not continue remdesivir on discharge. If they discharge prior to five days, then they, they just don't complete their treatment course. We do not have a symptom duration cutoff either in line with the um, ACT trial, which did not have a symptom duration cutoff. The core concept of this is that we have an allocation team that makes allocation decisions rather than the treating clinician. And I know Julie's going to tell us a lot more about this with South Carolina. But the point of this is overall that reduces bias, it avoids conflict of commitment, and it minimizes the moral distress of the bedside provider. So again, patients are, what we do is we run a report of every single patient in the system that's admitted with COVID-19. We then send every hospital's admitted patients every morning to a local treatment team, that's the local allocation team, and they screen those patients for eligibility. If the patients are eligible or borderline eligible, they might have a question, they call the primary attending and they discuss the case. And they also confirm important questions for the lottery um, with that attending, such as their address, so we know their area of deprivation index score, their occupation, so we know if they're an essential worker, things like that. Any eligible patient then gets submitted by the local allocation treatment team by 11 a.m., and that's our system cutoff. The lottery is run around 11.30 noon every day. We also use a random number generator. And then any patient that's allocated medication, we call the local teams back. And from there, that triggers the process to review the FDA fact sheet with the patient or the patient's representative. Once they do that, they have to confirm with us that the patient has accepted the medication. We have had a fair number of patients who decline. And at that point, we just put that drug back in the lottery and allocate it to another patient. Um, but if they accept, then at that point, our headquarters pharmacy ships the drug to that hospital and the pharmacist enters the medication order um, for that patient. And I will say that to me is probably my favorite part in the silver lining in all of this is one, learning about all these ethical principles and really um, how to treat patients and then two, treating patients where they are. So having patients at all of our community hospitals receive this level of care and be a part of the system and really getting to work with people all over the system has been really rewarding. Well, and I've Aaron, talked a lot, Julie. <laughs> Cut me off. I'm taking it all in. No, I really, really appreciate it. It's so valuable for me to just listen to the processes, rather sophisticated processes, it sounds like, at these two relative health systems. Just to round out in terms of our experience in South Carolina, uh, thankfully, uh, South Carolina's allocation process occurs at the state level for each patient. Um, and I say thankfully because I know a lot of our clinicians felt like that took the burden off of the local health systems. Uh, 
for coming up with yet another allocation process for another scarce resource. So that's one of the things that a lot of our providers have, have enjoyed about it so far. So in terms of logistics, the way that the South Carolina process works is that any provider with a hospitalized, uh, severe, confirmed COVID-19 adult or pediatric patient can submit their patient via a 24-7 statewide red cap portal. This is obviously um, very secure um, and is made to handle protected health information. All eligible patients are identified by the state health department at noon each day. And so this happens uh, seven days a week and drug is shipped to each hospital campus that um, where the eligible patient resides within one to three hours. We do have a relatively small state, so we can do that. Um, each survey um, that the clinician is asked to complete, ask a series of questions uh, that are based on clinical criteria. And so in general, we're trying to get to make sure that the patient is meeting our inclusion and exclusion criteria for eligibility, which in the state of South Carolina is really targeting patients early in their hospital course. So somewhat similar to what um, Aaron and um, Helen had described, we are targeting early patients. We happen to exclude any patients on ECMO, um, any patients that are on invasive mechanical ventilation for more than five days, trying to make sure that we're not getting those folks that are sitting in the hospital for a long time, especially when we first started the allocation. And then in addition, we recently updated our criteria to um, exclude any patients um, with a baseline life expectancy of less than 12 months prior to their COVID-related infection. And so as a provider is going through this survey, if they answer a question in such a way that they would fail to meet an inclusion criterion or meet an exclusion criterion, the survey stops and actually alerts them automatically and provides them with instructions for next steps. Um, using this process, we've allocated a couple hundred five-day courses of remdesivir to date since we went live with the process on May 15th. And so we were getting, um, the state received their shipment around the same time as what you guys are describing. It took us probably three or four days to get up and running, which was a little bit uh, of a delay, which those 48 hours feel like a lot um, when you're in the midst of all this COVID madness. Uh, but we're very proud with how the process um, has uh, gone since we've gone live on, on May 15th. Um, so just to give a, a shout out to the team that really helped put this together, it was truly a statewide coalition between the South Carolina Department of Health and Environmental Control, which uh, we call DHEC, as well as the South Carolina Hospital Association Pandemic Healthcare Ethics Council, which is where a lot of our bioethicist experts uh, reside. Um, as you guys uh, alluded to, I also hadn't really uh, learned too much about bioethics, and so their expertise was honestly invaluable. And then finally, we rounded that group out with an invited uh, volunteer council of clinical experts. This included uh, nurses, physicians, uh, pharmacists, including myself. Um, so I currently serve on that uh, clinical council in addition with this real coalition of relevant um, expert panels. And so we had essentially the same uh, goal and mission that you guys described as well in terms of coming up with an equitable and fair process that also tried to um, account for potential uh, imbalances in the allocation of healthcare.
Yeah, that's awesome, Julie. The fact that you guys have achieved that on a state level is is honestly incredible. I think something we're all striving to. I know our bioethicist has been working with the Pennsylvania Department of Health. As you guys are listening to us with this podcast, know that we learned as we go um, and these amazing systems have been built. So please reach out um, and we can share with you what we have going on, but every state's going to face different things. I wanted to walk through some kind of key principles that we learned. Um, whether, no matter what your system ends up looking like, these are some things to keep in mind. And so the first important variable in, in this remdesivir allocation process is the numbers. And so Julie's doing this at the state level is incredible because you increase your denominator, right? You have this bigger pot of drug that you can share with patients and you are able to identify all eligible patients in more areas. And that's really the goal um, and what I'm sure drove Helen and us as well to treat our allocation as a system as well. So when you're starting developing a lottery process, the first step is you need to determine the chances that each eligible patient in the general population has of receiving the drug. And this chance is determined by dividing the number of available courses of that scarce resource by the number of eligible patients. And where your team can make decisions is how long you want to stretch that drug out over. And so if you have more drug than patients, then you, you, know, you might say, okay, we're gonna treat everyone. But what you have to keep in mind is that what we've discussed, you may not have drug past June. And so do you want to stretch that drug over 30 days or over 60 days? When this all started, we had no idea when we were getting more drug shipment in. And so we had decided to stretch our medication supply out over 30 days. And so we looked back about three weeks of UPMC admissions at all sites and determined and chart reviewed patients on the day of admission to see if they would have been eligible for EUA drug. And we got an average number of admitted patients to the system every day that would be eligible. And at that time, that number was four patients per day. We then looked at 30 days. So we said in, in a month, we're going to treat 120 patients. And at the time, we only had about 12 or 15 treatment courses available. And so at that point in time, everyone's odds was whatever, 15 divided by 120 or whatnot. So you get your, your general population odds of receiving the drug over a certain number of time. And then, and then next, you go into what ethical framework you want to, to build into that. And so as Helen alluded to, first come, first serve may, not, may or may not be the best option based on your population and your area. Um, first come, first serve may disadvantage people who are not able to get to healthcare sooner. And so that's the whole premise of dividing your supply over 30 days instead of being like, well, we have 15 courses and we currently have 12 admitted patients. So let's give all 12 out on day one. Um, you're really thinking I'm going to stretch that 15 over, over 30 days or, or whatever. So the framework, at least that we came up with, um, and this again could vary, but what we, the three key factors we factor into our lottery are First, essential worker. And essential workers are, are given heightened priority in the lottery, not because that they're intrinsically more worthy as humans, but because of their instrumental value and their ability to save others and their ability to ensure the continuity of social infrastructure. So that is why we give essential workers in our lottery, they get a 25% increase. So if the average general population's person's odds of being allocated medication in the lottery were 28%, then an essential worker might have a 33% odds of being allocated drug. 
the other kind of key thing I learned is that it's not winning and losing. It's, it's allocated medication versus not allocated medication. And that terminology is important when you're talking about scarce resources. The next thing that we built into our framework is the patient's area of deprivation index. So this comes from, again, the whole goal of public health is to address social injustices and make health and safety less that these social injustices and these system structures that make health and safety less accessible to disadvantaged groups. And so we have to mitigate that somehow. And so mitigating the circumstances that cause disadvantaged persons to bear the greatest burden of the COVID-19 pandemic, our way of mitigating that is to give patients from a high area of deprivation index a, a greater odds of being allocated medication. So they also get a 25% increased weight in the lottery. And then finally, patients with an end-of-life prognosis that is poor, and we define that as greater than a 50% chance of death within a year, they're given a 50% decreased weight. So we still do enter them and give them a, a chance at being allocated drug. It's just lower odds than that, again, is to the goal of, is to allocate the resource to the patients that would achieve the greatest improvements in the population outcomes. We did not build age into our framework. You could make the case to do so. Um, and it's actually the reverse mentality of ventilator allocation, where all of the scarce resource allocation was originally derived from. When allocating ventilators, you actually prioritize younger patients. Um, but of course, with this medication and with COVID-19, that would not make sense because younger patients tend to improve more quickly and have less severe disease than elderly patients. And so that was a factor we actually took out of the framework and said that we're not going to use age for remdesivir. The other thing I just wanted to highlight that Julie said, and then Helen, I'm going to see if there's anything I missed that um, VJC did in terms of framework. Um, but, but we, for our, our local allocation teams that are screening patients and calling primary attendings every day, there is representation on those teams from pharmacy, physicians, nurse practitioners, other advanced practice providers, nursing and infection prevention. The teams are about six to eight people per hospital. And so it's important to kind of have all those pieces and all those brains together. And again, none of the people that are on the primary treatment team for the patient doing the screening. And we held, um, I just held like three one hour training sessions. And uh, so everyone on an allocation team had to join a training session and we walked through a patient and showed exactly where to look for the screening criteria to make sure everyone objectively was like screening patients the same, the same way. But Helen, what did I miss? What else goes into ethical framework decision making when you're building your lottery? No, I think you covered everything really well. And it sounds like we had similar discussions here at BJC. I will just add for the sake of mentioning that the allocation process needs to be transparent. If people don't know what the process is or the rationale for the process, it can create mistrust in the allocation decisions. And you also want to be sure that you can be responsive to any concerns um, that might be raised. And I think it's great that you guys have yours available online and publicly available. You really can't get any more transparent than that. So great job on that. Yeah, thank you so much for that, Helen. And then Julie, I, one last kind of key consideration we haven't hit on yet, but of course, in term, determining how much drug do you have, how many courses do you have, what is the general population's odds of being allocated drug, you got to decide how much drug you're giving them. So can you talk to us a little bit about our favorite numbers, five versus 10 days, and what, <laughs> what, what the state of South Carolina decided? 
Yeah, sure. I, again, I just have to preface this by saying this was our decision that we made as a as a coalition together in the state of South Carolina, but it was based on the information that we had at the time. So in South Carolina, we had 400 vials at first for the entire state. And at that time, we also had about 400 hospitalized COVID-19 patients at the very same time. Um, obviously, 400 vials is not going to cover those 400 patients. Um, so in order to maximize the number of patient lives saved, we decided based on the clinical um, research that we had available to us at that time, that we would limit uh, remdesivir allocation to five-day courses only. This allowed us to double our supply from 33 treatment courses up to 66 treatment courses. As data emerged that patients on oxygen supplementation seemed to be driving the positive clinical outcomes that you mentioned from the NIH Act 1 trial and so on, we continued with this focus on five-day courses, uh, particularly for patients relatively early in their hospitalization. So just for specifics about the South Carolina criteria, which again, if anyone is interested in the full list, they're welcome uh, to contact me, but we do allow patients that are on high flow nasal cannula um, and early in their course of invasive mechanical ventilation. And um, we do kind of exclude those that are kind of further down the line in terms of their respiratory status. If a patient feels like they must continue remdesivir past the five-day course that we have allocated, they can submit an appeal to the clinical council uh, for additional supply of drug. And this appeal is reviewed in a manner that blinds the deciding council to the identity of the requesting hospital and the identity of the patient. And the appeal is generally decided within 24 hours. So. I know other states and health systems um, have gone simply by the FDA EUA recommendations, um, giving five-day courses for most and then 10-day courses for those with mechanical ventilation um, and or ECMO, but that's the way that we decided to approach it in South Carolina. And so far, based on the data that we're getting back uh, from health systems and the state, it seems to be working out fairly well for us in terms of getting to our personal goal, which is we were trying to get drug uh, supply to last through the end of July. Thanks, Julie, for sharing that. I think that's awesome. And we, we took a similar approach. I believe Helen did too. She can jump in. But we five days for everyone right now. We don't have an appeals process, so I'm, I'm loving learning this. Um, but I think that's a good pause. Let's focus on what's true. What, what do the data tell us? What do we actually know? We've talked a lot about the, the FDA EUA criteria. And I think everyone needs to read that healthcare providers document for sure if you're ingrained in this process. And I'll tell you the three of us have read it like a hundred times. And as we sat down and worked out our notes for this podcast, we continue to identify areas that we continue to interpret slightly differently. And so uh, you are not alone, again, in, in trying to navigate what this does and does not say. And I think it's particularly confusing for special populations. And so, Helen, if you could kick us off and walk through, um, I think the special pops that come up with, can we give them drug, can we not give them drug, are pregnancy, pediatrics, renal impairment, hepatic impairment. 
Um, Helen, if you want to start with pregnancy and pediatrics um, and, then, and then transition, I think you and Julie can both discuss renal and hepatic impairment and what, what you guys are doing for those. Yeah, so you can give remdesivir under the EUA to pregnant patients and pediatric patients. Um, they do note in the EUA that no adequate and well-controlled studies have been conducted in pregnant women and to only give it if the risk outweighs the benefit. Uh, pediatrics, no studies yet assessing safety and efficacy, and the dosing has been extrapolated from adult pharmacokinetic studies. Um, the Compassionate Use Program is still available and is only available to pregnant patients and pediatric patients less than 18 years old. Um, so far, uh, or in the, in the EUA, they state that uh, 96 pregnant patients have been treated and 76 pediatric patients. We actually excluded them from our criteria if they were eligible for um, the Compassionate Use Program. Um, just to preserve more of the EUA remdesivir for more patients who would not otherwise receive it. Um, if our supply is good and they actually, St. Louis Children's, we actually get, did get some for them. So if it's sitting on the shelf, I mean, it, we haven't had to have this conversation yet, but if whether we should just use what we have here or um, still, still send them to the compassionate use pathway, I think it would just depend on the supply. Yeah, I, for our particular health system, it's been um, a similar discussion. Um, for the state-level consideration, it's identical to what Helen um, initially described. If the patient is pregnant or pediatric, we the survey will um, stop and suggest and provide instructions for how to submit to compassionate use. Um, I don't think we've gotten to the point quite yet where we would um, open it up. Uh, just based on supply and trying to hit our targets for allocation of the resource uh, based on South Carolina numbers, <laughs> which are currently increasing as of this recording. Um, so I think that's uh, very similar to our approach as well. But I think it's interesting to point out that the FDA EUA doesn't uh, exclude um, or prohibit use of the EUA supply in those particular special populations, which is particularly helpful. Um, some of the other requirements that we have received many questions about are renal and hepatic impairment. And so it takes a good two or three reads, but um, as Aaron mentioned, it is worth sitting down and going through exactly the language that's in the EUA. Um, and so we do know a couple of things that are required. You have to get renal function uh, monitoring at baseline. You have to get hepatic function monitoring at baseline and daily thereafter while on remdesivir therapy. And so then if you look at the details of the guidance for renal impairment, it says uh, that use is, quote, not recommended. And that's for EGFRs specifically less than 30 mils per minute or in full-term neonates uh, seven days to uh, 28 days old with a serum creatinine uh, greater than or equal to one milligram per deciliter unless the potential benefit outweighs the potential risk. And that last part is particularly interesting because we know we do have COVID-19 patients that um, either have chronic kidney disease or have suffered um, acute kidney injury um, by virtue of being hospitalized with COVID-19. Um, and so technically, the FDA EUA allows uh, some wiggle room 
for initiation of remdesivir in patients with renal impairment if the potential benefit outweighs the potential risk. And so uh, what the state has been uh, telling our health systems is um, if you feel like you have a patient like that, um, it would definitely have to be documented in the chart. Our current survey excludes uh, these patients that um, have that renal impairment according to that definition. However, clinicians are able to appeal if they feel like the patient really needs it um, for whatever reason. And then for hepatic testing, um, it says that use is not recommended if the ALT is greater than or equal to five times the upper limit of normal. And then it goes on to actually suggest discontinuation if a patient started on remdesivir and reaches that threshold or some other similar thresholds for hepatic impairment. So that one seems to be a little bit more firm when it comes to hepatic impairment, just because the risk to benefit ratio um, in, of use of remdesivir in hepatic impairment is uh, so poorly studied at this point. One last thing that I will say is that the, the time contraindication comes up in the FDA EUA is actually for known hypersensitivity to any ingredient of remdesivir. And so that is, I thought that was interesting, the difference between the, the verbiage not recommended versus the verbiage of contraindicated or contraindication um, specifically for hypersensitivity, which makes sense. I think that's, that's pretty clear cut that we wouldn't want to use it in those patients. So that kind of yeah. rounds out some of our considerations for special populations. Yeah. Thanks, Julia and Helen. I think uh, very briefly, we're very similar. So uh, pediatric patients less than 18 and pregnant patients, we, uh, they are technically allowed to receive drug through the EUA, but we are right now um, leveraging the compassionate use pathway to treat more patients. And we do, we stick, we stuck with the clinical trial criteria. So we do currently exclude patients if their EGFR is less than 30. Um, uh, but we let them continue on drug if their EGFR falls below 30 after they've initiated therapy at a provider patient discretion. But then we exclude anyone with um, LFTs greater than five times the upper limit of normal. I will say we live and we learn. So when we first started screening and allocating, the children's hospital was a separate entity. And then they promptly were like, we have people here that are older than 18, Aaron. And I was like, yes, you do. I'm sorry. And so quickly, so now I screen and run the report on the children's hospital every day as well. And then look at the patient's age, anyone 19, 20, 21 or older at the children's hospital goes into the EUA. So be careful um, just on, we actually, we have a new phrase at UPMC. It's not about the drywall. This came up with ICU level status for other clinical trials as well, because we've used ICUs as COVID units. That doesn't necessarily mean the patient's receiving ICU level of care. So we've really embraced the not about the drywall situation and really taking things as granular to the patient level as we can. Um, but okay, so now at so patient level, let's talk about what happens when you actually give the patient the drug because it sounds great and then you allocate them their six vials and then you breathe a sigh of relief and you're like, yeah, I treated a patient and then immediately you realize that the buck does not stop there, at least at UPMC. We very quickly became familiar with, I, Julie actually gets credit for this term, but allocation deviations. So I think it was our first or second patient that we treated. Uh, I think maybe our second and our third. The second patient, we made a compounding error. So this happens in pharmacy. This happens in healthcare. You're mixing the vial and you miscalculate the amount of fluid that you need to draw back and inject in the bag. And essentially just a compounding error was made, which is, and normally we just remake the drug. Well, not so much an option when every single 
vial has been accounted for. And again, our lottery odds went on total treatment courses. And all of a sudden now we have, you know, half a treatment course. And so after that, we kept the other four vials in that treatment course as like our error compounding lost dose kind of safety supply. And we redid the lottery odds, taking out a treatment course, um, keeping six vials and then, you know, down to four vials for future errors. So that was something we did not think of at first that we lived and we learned. Um, and then the other things that come up, Julie, do you want to tell us about some other ways that your perfect six vial allocations can kind of fall off the train tracks a bit? Absolutely. Uh, we'll be honest. We also struggled with this at first. So uh, South Carolina DHEC at this time, we do ask providers to report allocation deviations uh, for any reason via email. And so they're given a specific uh, instructions on how to do that. Um, and we define an allocation deviation as anything other than the hospital campus administering all six vials to the intended patient. So if a patient discontinues remdesivir early for any reason, um, it is actually not sent back to the state, but that supply stays within the health system. So that's a decision uh, that the uh, state of South Carolina made um, just for logistics. But we do give providers um, guidance on what to do in that situation. So DHEC currently recommends that the health system follow the FDA EUA for allocating that supply to a subsequent patient. And as I mentioned, the DHEC clinical criteria are actually a little bit more stringent than the FDA EUA. So it may open up uh, currently unassigned vials at that health campus to potentially some other patients. Um, Asper has clearly stated that EUA drug can be transported within a health system. Um, and so at my local health system, we decided to pool this unassigned supply of remdesivir, which it could be one vial, it could be 10 vials, uh, potentially even more. So we have our primary clinical coordinator, which is um, a stewardship pharmacist, track it across all campuses in a master Excel file that we use for a bunch of tracking, um, but this is one of the things that, that we'll do in that, in that file. If a new patient cannot access remdesivir via any of the four existing pathways that we mentioned before, um, and they really need this unassigned vial, so say, like you mentioned, there was a, a compounding error of a sort. We actually, at that point, locally have the chief of infectious diseases review the case and decide patient allocation from this currently very small supply. Um, just to make sure that we're maintaining our ethics principles, if the chief of ID it happens to be caring for the patient directly, which is a rare but possible situation, then we have the chief of medicine uh, decide on the patient allocation. And so that's how we kind of have the separation of the allocation decision uh, from the person directly caring for the patient at the bedside. So the state of South Carolina has had to give out extra supply of remdesivir if errors have occurred in preparation, dispensing, administration, et cetera. So very similar to what you described, we kind of pulled one or two uh, treatment courses worth out for that reason. Local health systems have also pulled such extra supply from their unassigned drug as well. Um, so honestly, we're still learning how to best manage this process. And uh, I mean, just taking a step back for a second, my heart really goes out to those clinicians who are at the bedside having to explain this entire process to their patient and their loved ones. I mean, I, I, 
we're dealing with a lot of the logistics and systems level uh, concerns, but trying to make sure that everybody knows how the process is going to go from beginning to end. Uh, we've done that in large part just to help ease a lot of that burden for the clinical team. Yeah, and that's a really, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm glad we can kind of get into that because we, this goes both ways. So we've had, you know, lost doses or whatnot, and we have pharmacy processes I think we'll talk about later. We have an FAQ section coming up at the end of this pod episode um, that we've tried to, to account for those. But also we've had allocation deviations with patients who initially accept the medication, they get two, three doses, and then they decide I don't want this anymore. Um, and that's okay, obviously, then you stop the drug. And so we've had extra vials returned to stock that way. We vary if we keep the vials on site versus send them back to our headquarters pharmacy. Uh, that was something we learned when we first started, we had everything centralized. And then we realized some of our hospitals that are three, four hours away, like Helen was saying, it made more sense to keep a course or two on hand at those sites, despite it being a little more difficult to track and keep track of who, what's where, but that we want to start patients on medication faster. So some of the further out hospitals, as we learned more, as we say, we learn every day in this, we now we keep some on site or if there's allocation deviations, we just let them keep the vials. It all, it all depends really. Um, but the other thing, so we're giving patients drug is, is awesome and, and, and all the systems that go with that, but Patients who are not allocated medication, we had to come up with a way to help providers and members of the allocation teams have those conversations as well because they're extremely difficult conversations to have. And I want to recognize Dr. Tara Cook and Dr. Taylor Lincoln of the UPMC system who have helped at least us develop documents about how to deliver serious news that a patient or a loved one was not allocated remdesivir. And again, as with all of the things we're discussing today, these systems and processes can be used for really any scarce resource throughout the pandemic. I'm sure remdesivir is not going to be the last medication or resource that we have to do this with, unfortunately. So this framework, I wanna briefly describe it for our listeners, and then I wanna get into our FAQs. But essentially it's this ask, tell, ask framework. So first you ask permission of the patient start with something such as I'm hoping to talk to you about COVID-19 and what it means for you and your loved one. Is this an okay time to talk? And then you want to ask the patient's understanding. So what have you heard about this medication that I'm about to tell you you didn't get, although they don't know that yet. And then tell, would it be okay if I told you what I know? And then you say how oh, this is a very difficult time. There's limited supply of this medication at UPMC and nationwide. We're following the rules of the state and the government for determining who receives this medication. And I wish I had better news but your loved one is not going to receive this medication. We're going to continue all other medical treatments that we think would benefit your loved one and help your loved one recover from this illness. And then pausing to allow the family member to kind of absorb that is very important. And then after you've given them time to process, ask. So ask, tell, ask. So the second ask is what questions do they have and ask their understanding. So it would help me to hear something like, and you want to be as open-ended as possible, but something like it would help me to hear what you will tell your other family members when you speak with them tonight about what just happened. And then people respond emotionally to things. Of course, this is difficult for all of us, especially when receiving serious news. So we also have guidance for providers on how to respond to emotion. So with kind of things like what the patient would say and then how you would respond. Um, so things like, why can't my loved one receive this or shouldn't I be receiving this? And a lot of the responses are grounded in principles of motivational interviewing. So you never understand what someone else is going through because you're not them and you don't understand. So you want to avoid the phrase, I understand at all costs. Um, but saying, you know, open-ended and, and, and truthful statements such as, this is an extraordinary time. 
and we're trying to use resources in a way that's fair to everyone. The severity of your illness does or does not meet criteria or your loved one was or was not allocated. Um, bringing the focus to that it was everyone's following the same rules and that it's the subjective third party team that's deciding these things that you can't imagine how scary the situation is that um, things like that. So we've just provided that guidance again, happy to share um, and again, have to give credit to a really tremendous team of physicians and, um, and other people at UPMC who have helped come up with these, this process and these kind of responses to this situation. Kudos to you guys for, for putting that out there. Yeah, thank you so much, Julia. I learned a lot from, from working with them and, and, and reading through that framework. So hopefully that's helpful to all of our listeners. Um, and with the Breakpoints podcast, we're very fortunate to have good audience engagement. And for this one in particular, we wanted to hear what else you guys had questions on because we've discussed a lot of things we lived and learned through, but we know other people faced different or, or similar challenges. And so the three of us are extremely fortunate to have a process ironed out now for our respective health systems, but I hope you've gotten the sense that that was not an overnight fix and that it was, it was a, a huge, huge lift and a team effort. And I want to just be very clear to our audience that um, the three of us largely shifted our clinical focus to basically solely dealing with this drug for a, a pretty significant period of time. And so um, to, to do all of this comes at the cost of doing other things. And so we heard from other clinicians who are still potentially struggling with allocation. And as Julie pointed out at the beginning of the episode, we have two more shipments that we expect left in June. And so you guys, to some degree, will have to go through this twice more this month. So um, the biggest struggle does seem to be lack of personnel resources at the state or local level. And so what advice, Julie, maybe you can start us off, do you have for folks that may have limited personnel um, to manage this drug? Yeah, I think this is a, a very common challenge. Uh, within the state of South Carolina, we recommended that all health systems identify a primary clinical coordinator for remdesivir at each health system. Uh, we did this a lot. It started off based on logistics, like, you know, who are we going to call 24-7 that we can um, actually reach that will know what's going on with each of these eligible remdesivir patients. But in my opinion, this same concept can be applied to essentially any health system, uh, no matter what the process is. Uh, this can be an ID or stewardship pharmacist, an ID physician, um, a nurse or mid-level provider, um, an administrator on the incident command team, essentially whoever's available um, at the health system that can make this go. Um, everyone is terribly busy, so we did have to ask administration to free up this person's time to focus on this process within our own health system. Uh, we have one primary clinical coordinator for most of our health campuses, but because we are so large, uh, we do have more than one coordinator for certain sites, but everyone knows who that person is, um, and they can manage local requests for the drug uh, for each campus. And so it, this is to us very important because it's very complicated um, and things are constantly changing with remdesivir. You can have up to four ways to get the drug um, at the campus at any given time. Uh, plus you have all the logistics that we talked about in terms of receiving the drug, placing the order, educating staff, tracking information and so on. So overall, uh, locally, we leave the EUA supply as the pathway of last resort and um, shout out to our second year ID Pharmacy Fellow, Jeanette Bouchard, who um, I uh, very quietly nominated to be a primary clinical coordinator uh, in this position. And I must say, she's done an amazing job 
over the intervening two months with me working so much at the state level and a lot of our stewardship team focusing on other things. Uh, she uh, was on her research month and she was interested. And so she was willing to do this. Um, now that she's graduating, it will be, we're shifting such that the primary person will be the antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist that's on the service. So that gets to be yours truly in July, but we got a system kind of in place to manage the personnel issues going forward. Um, I just kind of a shout out for our profession. There have been so many people that have been working on this on top of their daily responsibilities over the last uh, two months. And I'm continually in awe of both what SIDP members have done, what the pharmacy profession has offered, um, and what all of our healthcare colleagues and allies have done uh, as it relates to getting this med to the patients that need it the most. So the reason I say that is because the centrality of the personnel, it was key for us. And I think there is a huge opportunity for antimicrobial stewards to step into this role um, if they don't have that already set up in their health system. Um, I know each one of the three of us had the unofficial experience of having to advocate to put something in place because we didn't see things uh, moving too quickly, um, at least in the first couple of days. Um, so it's not uncommon that that type of advocacy um, and that ask from the bottom up might have to occur in your health system. Yeah, I think I, I couldn't agree more. I think I've been pretty amazed seeing what systems all over the country have done with this. Um, and then once you build it, once you get this going, it's don't be afraid to delegate it out. So we were working with a, at UPMC a core team of about eight or nine people. And then, like I said, we trained, you know, eight or nine people at each hospital um, and completely decentralize this and have local treatment teams because you can't, you can't do it alone. And we did ask the leadership commitment and the administrative support is essential. So, um, you know, I had to be told, yes, I have a really awesome team of other stewardship pharmacists. And they said, Aaron, you do COVID and we'll take care of the other prospective audit and feedback and the prior offs and all of the other things our stewardship team does. So I had that, I was lucky to have that support to be able to focus these efforts on this. And then um, we had the local vice presidents of medical affairs at each hospital nominate the local allocation teams. So it was a leadership commitment of, yes, these people every day are getting this list and screening these patients, and this is a priority and important. And that's what makes the, that's what makes the, the ship keep moving forward. Um, it's funny, though. I think when we were soliciting feedback, one of uh, our SIDP bright shining up-and-comer stars said that his wife told him that she wished her name was remdesivir over the past few months because of all the time we spend on this drug. So again, you guys are certainly not, al not alone. Um, I'm going to like name my dog remdesivir. I really appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> it's very accurate. Oh yeah. Right. Okay. Helen and Julie, we're going to close this out. I want to, we're going to like rapid fire style, go through the other lingering questions they are kind of the nitty gritty, detail-y type stuff that we had to hash through with the EUA. So Helen, I want you to take the first one. Something that we get asked about is this requirement for adverse event reporting to FDA MedWatch. What is that and what are you guys doing? The EUA re requires that all medication errors and serious adverse events that are potentially related to remdesivir be reported to the FDA's MedWatch within seven days of the event. And I was today years old when I learned that the MedWatch form also needs to be forwarded to Gilead. <laughs> so thanks, Julie. 
when we were running our podcast notes about an hour ago, Julie taught us that we also supposed to send it to Gilead. So, whoops. <laughs> so we're just keeping a close eye on everything. All of our pharmacists are monitoring daily. And we also send a list of remdesivir patients to our EICU so that they can be on the lookout for any telemetry-related adverse events. We also are making sure to report all events internally so that we can track and make sure that any necessary follow-up is completed. Yeah, it's a, oh, sorry, no, go ahead, Julie. Oh, I was just gonna say, we've done uh, the same. We've had um, a few patient deaths, unfortunately, while on Rindesir that we had to report. Uh, one patient that had a new dialysis start, which classified as a serious adverse event. Um, and then uh, quite a few cases of LFTs uh, reaching that threshold of over five times the upper limit of normal. Um, and same thing, we report them locally. Um, again, any medication errors as well. Um, I know of a few health systems throughout the state. Thankfully, it's relatively rare, but um, we have had some med errors, so those have been reported too. Yeah, same. We're actually, I'm, I guess, more in the school of like report it all. So you have to report the serious adverse events, but we're all learning a lot about this drug. So I think any, any information is good information. So we've had two cases of bradycardia that I just wanted to point out that truly could not be explained. Um, we even did the adverse event scale to see the likelihood of it being related to the drug. Um, two separate patients at the same hospital, but we couldn't explain the bradycardia outside of the remdesivir infusion. So we reported those, um, an infusion reaction, things like that. Um, but yes, just and reporting to MedWatch and now we'll uh, send those to Gilead as well. Um, and we did put this on the provider though, actually. So pharmacists are monitoring and encouraged to support, but we created a dot phrase that when a patient accepts medication, the provider enters a dot phrase into a progress note and it bullet points the patient was allocated medication on this day. I reviewed the FDA fact sheet with the patient on this day. And then we go through the monitoring, the daily labs, the LFTs, the dosing, and then that we include a little paragraph with the link to the FDA MedWatch. And that all goes in the a progress note in the chart so everyone can, can read it. And that's how we document that we spoke with the patient as well. Um, other tracking, another question we got asked was about what pharmacy information needs tracked, kind of the logistical nitty-gritty things. So I mentioned this briefly earlier, but we do not have this drug gun order on view for providers to order in Cerner Power Chart. We only, in Cerner Systems, pharmacists verify orders in a separate computer called FarmNet, and this is only viewable in the FarmNet side. So the, the pharmacist has to enter the order. That helps us be a little tighter on we know the education got done. We know the patient accepted. Now we're going to place the order. We know the second the order gets verified, we go find the label and communicate with the IV room and, and go from there. We have a perpetual inventory log that our um, director of pharmacy came up with and then shared that at a system operations and directors meeting. So other hospitals are using this process too to just track vials. And then we, when we deliver remdesivir to the floor, a technician delivers it directly to the nurse and the nurse has to sign for it. And we have a log sheet that goes up with the med and comes back down with the technician just to kind of have a chain of command, so to speak, of medication so that they don't get lost in refrigerators or vials getting, getting lost. And then another question that got asked was about USP 800 and whether or not remdesivir is a hazardous med. Uh, Helen or Julie, any thoughts on that? Oh yeah, we do not treat it as a hazardous med. We did get confirmation from Gilead that um, it does not meet um, the NIOSH or USP 800 definition. And that's the same for us. We do not treat it as a hazardous med based on the confirmation from Gilead that we got back in March. 
Awesome. Okay. So not a hazardous med. And then what, a, what's the deal with the powder versus the solution guys? What's the, why are we, why are we getting two different products here? <laughs> what do we do with them? Yeah, we've received both. The liquid needs to be refrigerated, but the lyophilized powder does not need to be refrigerated, but it actually can be. It just says store below 86 degrees Fahrenheit. So if you think it would be confusing if you had both in your pharmacy, you could consider storing the powder in the refrigerator as well if you have the space. Um, for pediatrics, they only recommend using the lyophilized powder, and that's due to the SBECD content in the liquid formulation. Um, so interestingly, our, our children's hospital received some of the liquid, so we had to trade it out with our adult hospital. Yeah, that's very similar to how we've handled it. Um, we've done a lot of education, signage, handouts, huddles, things like that. It's helpful that currently the um, injectable solution is in, you know, one colored vial of the blue and then the lyophilized powder is in the red top vials. And so we've taken pictures of them and um, at the state level, we actually sent out some information and engaged with our um, state chapter um, at SESHP, the South Carolina Society of Health System Pharmacists, to send out similar education to kind of just get people accustomed to the fact that there are two uh, different vial formulations that are floating around. One thing that I'll add uh, regarding the lyophilized powder versus the injectable solution, we built in a couple of things into our order set, uh, which similar to Aaron, only pharmacy is able to order at this time. So um, we uh, limited the diluent to be a standard 250 mLs of normal saline uh, because the, while the lyophilized powder allows either 100 or 250 mLs, the injectable solution requires the 250 of normal saline specifically. Um, in that order set, we also added an order for a 30 ml uh, normal saline flush to be given after remdesivir infusion to ensure that all the drug is administered to the patient. So we learned that when we went through the clinical trials and we thought that that was a helpful thing to add into the order set. Um, so just a couple of tips and tricks that we've learned along the way. Well, that's awesome, Julia. And we do the 250 over 30 minute standard as well, but I, I did not we don't do the flush. So that's, I'll bring that back to my team as well. Um, I do want to mention another SIDP member submitted to us when we saw a call for this podcast that they prepare, they also kind of took the extra mile to prepare an abbreviated package insert type deal for their pharmacy managers. And it walked through the two solutions and reconstitution and storage and things like that. So that creating those materials is, is always very helpful for your local site. So kudos to that pharmacist too, who did um, that. That's actually another South Carolina pharmacist, Julie, so someone in your team. Um, I thought it sounded familiar. I think different, I think different health system, but same team. So you're just inspiring. Um, but that's awesome. I, that education is key. So education, I um, glossed over this in the interest of time, but Julie mentioned at one point there was four different ways to get this medication. Now we've condensed down the emergent, the expanded access program has gone away that you were able to take those vials though. If you had expanded access program drug and you didn't use it all, you were able to then make that EUA drug. That was the case at UPMC. So that's been a bit confusing because the expanded access program vials are labeled investigational use only, whereas the EUA vials are not. And so while we can't enroll in EAP anymore, we can use that drug. And so that was an added layer of, you might get this vial that says investigational only. Um, and then when all of the things were open, you know, um, and if you're still a clinical trial site, just you know, 
communicating with your frontline staff, the ways that patients can get into trials and get drug can be very confusing. So just keep on keeping on, communicate, communicate, communicate. You cannot over-educate about all these pathways and just be very patient with people because understandably, they're going to have a lot of questions. Um, and then the last FAQ we want to touch on is renal dosing, so to speak. So I think we all said um, currently not actively enrolling people in our allocation system, patients that have EGFRs less than 30, you can appeal if there's an outstanding case. Um, but if they fall below 30 while on drug, I think we all let them continue the medication at a provider-patient discussion on whether or not to continue. Um, Julie, do you want to comment a little bit further on that? Yeah, um, I, I know there have been many ID pharmacy experts that have commented on this in various forums. And, and in general, I think we're kind of all on the same page that based on the observational data uh, with voriconazole, which has the same uh, cyclodextrin solubilizer component, um, and our experience with voriconazole patients that have renal impairment and seeing what happens in those patients, we locally generally continue the remdesivir for our patients that have EGFRs that dip below 30 while on therapy because we feel the benefit likely outweighs the risk at that point. I will caveat that by saying that we're only doing five days for the majority of patients. Uh, but I think it's certainly an area for uh, additional study and I'm hopeful some SIDP, SIDP members will be jumping on that over the next few weeks. Yeah, we actually don't exclude patients with an EGFR less than 30 if the benefit outweighs the risk, especially it seems like a lot of these patients are in acute renal failure or critically ill from COVID. And we are also only treating five days and feel like the same as you, that the risk is really low um, in a lot of these patients. Awesome, thanks for clarifying that, Helen. Okay, I think the last question that commonly comes up is what is the dose in patients on CVVH or on ECMO? The answer is I have no clue. Um, I don't know. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> yeah, uh, we don't know. We're still doing 200 milligrams on day one and 100 milligrams for four additional days, partly because of how we're allocating drug, partly because there's no data. We don't want to make a dose up. There are a couple laboratories nationally that are doing remdesivir levels as well as levels of the active metabolite. So if you're able to and want to send some levels and try to study this, we highly encourage you. We look forward to those data. Other helpful resources as we start to wrap this up. So of course, we have to recognize Dr. Matthew Davis, who is at UCLA. He has been the SIDP member responsible for the remdesivir educational YouTube video, which is also available for free pharmacist CE. You can check it out on YouTube under the SIDP channel or go to the SIDP COVID-19 resources page and find it there. It is a fantastic roughly 30 minute video of all things remdesivir. And thank you to all of our members who have been updating various YouTube videos for all of the COVID-19 experimental therapies. So highly encourage you guys to look at that. And then of course, phe.gov webpage on remdesivir that Julie mentioned at the very beginning of this podcast is your source of truth for government allocation. So as we wrap this up, you guys, I can't thank you enough for your insights, for your hard work, and for navigating this process and sharing it with our listeners. Do you have any last minute thoughts for our audience as we close out this episode? Yeah, I think um, the, the one thing that I want folks to kind of leave the podcast with is hopefully to feel a little empowered and to feel hopeful that um, it is possible to create a local remdesivir allocation process. 
And it is very difficult, but it is worth doing. Uh, we found uh, a lot of the reason that we kind of forged ahead and have kept honing the process is because we're hoping that this will save us time and we can mimic this process if and when we're able to get a vaccine in place for SARS-CoV-2, which we anticipate will also be a scarce resource when it comes live. So um, I would just encourage our members out there um, who are pulling these long hours and taking on these additional um, responsibilities that um, ask for help, delegate what you can, um, and you are in a really good position to, to make a big impact on patient care. Yeah, I echo everything you said, Julie, and I think one of the shining lights in all of this is how the medical community has really pulled together. Um, so just remember that we're all in this together and we are going to all come out stronger because of it. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, thank you both. I echo all your thoughts completely. Again, anyone listening, please feel free to reach out to any of us and our teams. Um, even I know this week, like members of my team reached out to Julie's team just because medicine is a small world and pharmacy is a small world. and um, we are all in this together to, to figure this out and do the best that we can. So we are finding answers slowly but surely. Hopefully this episode has been helpful. Again, you are listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases podcast. I'm Erin McCreary, joined today by Julie Ann Justo and Helen Newland. Thank you for listening and stay safe.